0: The scripture reading today is from Acts, the 21st chapter, 1 through 14. And it occurs as Paul has taken leave of the Ephesian elders. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day, we went to Rhodes and from there to Petara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board, and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them for seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship, and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed in Ptolemaeus, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. The word of the Lord. Thanks
1: be to God. Do you see the problem here? On the one hand, the disciples are pleading with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And it says that they they say this through the Spirit of God. God seems to be leading them to get Paul not to go. And then a prophet speaks a word. It says through the Holy Spirit that Paul will be bound by the Jewish leaders and handed over to the Gentiles if he goes to Jerusalem. And this leads other Christians to plead with Paul not to go. But Paul won't be dissuaded. He says, I'm going. Finally, everyone ends by saying, well, the Lord's will be done. What's the Lord's will? For Paul not to go to Jerusalem or to go to Jerusalem? To not go into danger or to go into danger? When do we know a course of action is the Lord's will? When people who are all truly of the Lord are praying and seeking God, but just see it differently. Well, Paul and his companions, they've been in Ephesus, and last Sunday, Al Hammond preached on how uh, Paul got into a lot of hot water in Ephesus, but he also had a very fruitful ministry in Ephesus. He had uh, some, some great days there and developed a great love for the people. They developed a great love for him. Uh, we have a letter that's addressed right to the Ephesians in our New Testaments. In the book of Revelation, the church of Ephesus is, is talked about. Paul stayed there about two years. That's about as long as he stayed anywhere. And in our passage this morning, we find ten different places named where Paul hits in his travels. If you read that passage, you'll just notice all the names, all the places. The man did not stay put very much. He got around. And after leaving Ephesus, he goes to two different islands. Uh, Paul didn't just go to the big and glamorous places, Paul also went to those small, out of the way, less populated places as well. The first island mentioned, I think I'll use this map over here today, I got my green pointer again, there's Ephesus, and the first island he goes to is Kos, right there. It's it's a small island in a group of islands, the smallest in a group of islands called the Dodecanese Islands of Greece, today it's, it's very popular for beaches and tourism. Do you suppose that Paul and his companions just wanted to get a little r and R, a a little beach time <laughs> by going to Kos, I mean, why do you need to go to Kos, huh? Then they set sail to Rhodes, and here is Rhodes. This is the big island in all these islands. This is off the coast of Greece, and and here is Rhodes. Um, Rhodes was the home of the Colossus of Rome, which was a statue of the Greek sun god Helios. It was erected in 280 BC, and it was at that time considered one of the seven wonders of the world, of the ancient world. The Colossus was constructed to celebrate a military victory that had taken place in Rhodes. According to most contemporary descriptions, the Colossus stood approximately 108 feet high. And that's about comparable to our Statue of Liberty, as the statue goes from foot to head. It was about that big. It was the tallest statue in the ancient world. Uh, It collapsed during an earthquake in 226. You won't find it anymore. It was not rebuilt Uh, Part of the base is still there. You can see it, but it no longer exists. Paul not only went to new places, but as we read Paul's travels, he spent a lot of time going back to the places where he brought Christianity and he started churches and made disciples. Uh, He didn't spend all his time winning new converts and starting new churches or risking his life. And in between all the dramatic things that we read about in Acts, there are many days patient teaching, and nurturing where Paul strengthened the believers because being a witness is not always about the new and exciting projects. There's a lot of slow, just painstaking work sometimes that comes in making and developing disciples. Well, Paul gets to a place called Tyre in Syria, and it says that people, by the Holy Spirit, tell him not to go to Jerusalem. And there is a beautiful scene where all of them, including wives and children, accompanied us, Luke writes, out of the city, and there on the beach we knelt to pray. And they send companions, uh, Paul and their companions off. Boy, that is the way, the appropriate way to send off people in the work of the Lord, to meet them, to gather around them, to kneel down, and to pray as a community and commit them to the Lord. Look, at, it says, even the children came and did that. It's a beautiful scene. So then they go to Caesarea from there, and a real USDA-approved prophet named Agabus makes a special trip from Judea to bring a message of the Lord through the Spirit, through the Holy Spirit, to Paul. And Agabus acts out this prophetic word, taking Paul's belt, and Agabus binds himself, and he says, in this way, Paul will be bound, and he will be handed over. How much clearer can you be? It was a visual word, not just a spoken word. Now, this is the second time that the church, through the Spirit, has told Paul, you might want to turn around. You might want to rethink this whole thing of going to Jerusalem. Paul says, no way, I'm going. Paul's even willing to die, he says. Not out of spiritual heroics, not to prove himself, but he says very clearly, for the name of the Lord Jesus. And the people say, well, the Lord's will be done. But do they say that scratching their heads? I mean, sometimes the Lord's will be done is all we can say when we're perplexed by the circumstances. We may even say that in resignation, saying, "Well, I don't know, I'll just say it. Who's right? Who knows the will of God here? There are many voices that speak through the Spirit to Paul that he should not go. Or is Paul right? Or is Paul just a stubborn fool? figuring out the will of the Lord is not always a crystal clear path. There can be a lot of head scratching and the biblical story, a lot of stories that, that make up the biblical story is never really all boxed up and neat and tidy with all the loose ends tied up and no tension or mess. I would even say that the will of the Lord is not one thing. It's not always one thing. God gives us freedom to choose. And sometimes people who truly want to please the Lord can go any number of ways. He allows us to do that. And to be sure, whatever path we choose is going to have its own consequences. But He lets us determine that. And God can work His will for us through whatever path we choose. Disciples want to do the will of God, don't we? We know that Jesus taught us to pray, Thy will be done. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Jesus said, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother, my family. Jesus said one time that his food is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. Doing the will of his Father was literally Jesus' nourishment. He says, that is what I feed off of. And in Gethsemane, we know the scene well, don't we, where Jesus prays to the Father that this cup would pass from him, meaning that he wouldn't have to go to the cross. But nevertheless, he prays, yet not my will, but your will be done. And Paul writes in Romans... Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. When our minds are changed from the values, from the patterns of this world, and they are renewed in the Lord, we're better able to discern, to know what God's will is. We see circumstances. We see life. We see things in a different way. With these things, here, here's some other thoughts on living in the will of God. I think discerning the Lord's will is an art. You kind of learn by going and get the feel of it, and yet we, we, have to, we can't just read about it or hear about it. We have to do it, and, and as we try to live our lives with God and honor His will, we begin to recognize His will more and more. We learn the will of God by paying attention to the little things every day that we're faced with, and then I think the big things begin to come. Also, I think to know God's will presupposes God is real. Don't think we're going to know God's will if we don't think God is real, or that He can't speak to us, or that He doesn't want to speak to us. He doesn't hide His will. He wants us to work in relationship with Him to discover it. And the discerning person is a praying person who takes God seriously, who is genuinely concerned for God's involvement in his or her life. If someone's casual, someone's indifferent, I'm not sure God's going to speak to that heart. We have to truly want to do what God wants and accomplish His will and be open to being led by the Lord. Knowing God's will is not earned. It's a gift. It's a gift. We don't have to work for it. We have to, we have to work for it in the sense we, you know, you're in a relationship with someone and you're praying and you're seeking, but it's a gift. And thank God the Lord doesn't always ask us to be right. No, He doesn't. What He does ask us to do is to be true to our understanding of His will as much as we can attain it and then just walk in that way. And trying to know the Lord's will happens with others. It is never an all-by-myself thing. We have the community of loving, wise, mature, experienced people to lean on that we can go to and say, "Help me know this." We must decide for ourselves, but we never have to decide by ourselves. And in Acts we see try, people trying to discern will, God's will together as a community. God has always used people to speak. In the Old Testament, he uses prophets. In the New Testament, he uses prophets and others to speak his heart. And you know what that does? That puts God's word at risk. Because someone could be wrong. Someone could claim to speak for God and be unfaithful. Someone might distort that word. But I think God's willing to take that risk because he wants us to be mature partners in what he is doing. Mature partners with him. I mean, sure, the Lord could intervene miraculously, right, and just send us a message that is so clear that, uh, you, you know, maybe send an angel or just in some direct way where we don't have to seek anything, but that would require less faith and less struggle on our part. And those things are necessary to mature as Christians in faith. I think when the believers in Acts hear Paul's insistence that he's going to Jerusalem and they say, the Lord's will be done, they aren't saying that they have it all figured out. They aren't saying that they even understand it. What they are saying is that we will live by faith in this. They believe Paul wants to do God's will. They're willing to trust what God is doing, even as they kind of scratch their heads. Sometimes a decision is made in a church or with a body of people, and different people land in different places as to what God might want, what His will might be. We see that with the believers. We see that with Paul here. There may come a time when we just finally have to come to a decision and in humility, in humility, recognize we don't know everything or even most of God's plan for someone, and we just have to start Asking God to carry out his desire for their lives or for our lives. I mean, how many times in my life have I said, Lord, I don't know where this is going. I don't see how this adds up, but I will trust you and I will walk in faith on this, believing you're with us. I mean, every Christian has to decide, don't we, about the things in our lives. Is God in control or isn't he? We have to decide and we have to trust, and I know we get frustrated as to why that has to be so hard sometimes, but if God were so obvious, it wouldn't require faith, would it? And faith is constantly called for throughout the Bible, and we have to keep dependent on God, keep trusting, keep holding His hand, and that's what He wants. Well, after all the back and forth between the church and Paul, Paul wins out. And he does go to Jerusalem, and he is bound, and he is arrested, and we'll get to that. So how can suffering now be part of God's will? Jerry Sitzer, a a Christian theologian and, and no stranger to suffering in his own life, he lost many members of his family in a terrible car accident. He said, he thinks that suffering is both inside and outside the will of God. It runs contrary to what God intended for the world that he created, yet it also fits his providential plan for history. In other words, God makes the hard stuff that he doesn't will fit into his will for our lives. It is not that he wills suffering, but he makes that hard stuff work according to his will for us. Regardless, you know, regardless of the particulars of each one of our life, we, we know that God wills for everyone here that we love Him more, that we be growing in trust, that we know Him more, that we place our lives before Him. And in that way, God will take all the junk that plagues us and He will use it to put us there. It's a paradox, but it's nonetheless true. How do we know this? Because of the cross of Christ. The cross was history's darkest moment, and yet it was its greatest moment. On the one hand, it was an affront, an insult to the will of God. At the same time, it was the fulfillment of God's plan of redemption. On the one hand, the cross was a terrible injustice, and on the other hand, it was an expression of God's perfect justice and mercy. One thing today's passage in Acts does tell us about the will of the Lord is that the will of the Lord does not mean the easiest path. Not necessarily the smooth way, nor does it mean there will be no pain or suffering involved with the will of God. That's not Christian faith. Paul, who wrote in Romans, that we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who were called according to his purpose. He believes that he is in the will of God, even if it means his death when he's in Jerusalem. I read the book of Acts, we've been reading the book of Acts, and it's all about the Holy Spirit, isn't it? All about the work and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And God works so powerfully in some of these stories, and he works so directly. And I say, man, where did that go? How come that's not happening? How come I don't see that? But then I read, and even though the Spirit moves so strongly, doesn't end sickness, doesn't end suffering, doesn't end rejection or evil or injustice or ignorance. Those things were still happening. And the pressure and the stress and the suffering some of those Christians, first Christians went through was tremendous, tremendous. On the one hand, with the coming of Christ, the battle with the forces of evil and death was won. On the other hand, the kingdom of God is still fully, not yet come. There are still battles to be fought. And the world where disciples must make their witness is not a hospitable place, is it? Jesus may have been a babe in a manger, and I know we get all warm about that on Christmas Eve, but read the story, he grows up and he starts teaching and doing stuff and the trouble begins. Think about the witness to Jesus Christ in Acts. I mean, Peter and Paul have been arrested Uh, Stephen's been martyred, Paul is chased and beaten and opposed. Acts teaches us that being a witness to Christ can often be a hard path. Living in the power of the Spirit doesn't mean being shielded from all heartache and pain. And the notion that only good things happen to people who are faithful, that was put to rest on a Friday afternoon at Calvary. To live in the Spirit does mean knowing that there's meaning in our struggles. To live in the Spirit is to live in the conviction that God can use whatever heartache that we might encounter as we try to be faithful to Him, that He will use it to bring about His purposes. And Paul understood this. His concern is to live for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's his whole rationale that guided his whole life. And perhaps he believed as long as he put that name first in his life, he was always going to be in the will of God. Maybe Jerusalem won't be a lot of fun for Paul. He's going anyway. Because Paul knows that his life is not his life. And the one under whom he serves and in whose name he preaches and heals And baptizes is the one whose name he's even willing to suffer and die for. And as we live and as we honor that name, the name of the Lord Jesus, we can say with confidence, we can say with confidence, the Lord's will be done. As I close in prayer, I'm going to use a prayer by Thomas Merton. It's a prayer about knowing the will of God. I've shared it before. Maybe you've heard it. I've prayed it. I continue to pray it for my life. So let's pray. My Lord God, I have no idea where I am going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end. Nor do I really know myself and the fact that I think that I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope I have that desire in all that I'm doing. I hope that if I will never do anything apart from that desire... And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, I will trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear. For you are ever with me and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. Amen.